You're listening to Heart Sounds, TCTMD's award-winning podcast hosted by Shelley Wood. Hello and welcome to the Heart Sounds podcast for September 2021. This is the podcast where I tip you off about some of the interesting stories we ran on TCTMD.com this past month and let you eavesdrop on some of the interviews I and my team conducted to pull those together. We know many of you are once again seeing hospitals and clinics swamped by the latest surge in COVID-19 cases, so thank you for taking our calls along with all the other things you do. Let's jump in. I hope you caught last month's podcast, which was given over to my conversation with ESC President Stefan Achenbach about his top takeaways from the ESC 2021 meeting. It had just wrapped up when we spoke. I did manage a mention of Yael Maxwell's feature story on expired medical devices, but didn't go into any detail. So to kick off today's podcast, I thought I'd play you a few interviews from that feature, which really tried to address this topic from all angles. What is being done now with devices that are nearing or past their expiry dates? On what basis do we determine devices to no longer be safe or effective? And how do we know that these products couldn't still save or improve lives in countries that can't afford to use them as regularly as we do in the West? I'm going to play you three clips today back to back in the hopes you'll be inspired to go and read Yael's feature. You can still find it on the TCTMD homepage entitled Expired Medical Devices May Do Global Good. The first voice you'll hear now is Khalid Al-Jahani from the King Abdullah bin Abdulaziz University Hospital in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The next is B. Hadley Wilson from the Sanger Heart and Vascular Institute in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the third is medical ethicist Arthur Kaplan of NYU School of Medicine in New York. I noticed that there is a lot of expired items in one of the labs. And uh, one, uh, one of my technicians said, just give it to charity, and I, I doubted that. Is it first legal? Two, is it ethical? Uh, is it safe too? Do we know if uh, the safety and efficacy of these stents are valid beyond their expiry dates, or is just labeled because of uh, manufacturer uh, requirements by agencies and governmental institutions that you have to have an expiry date, uh-huh. where some things are not meant to be expired? All these questions went into my head, and I started actually to Google it. Uh, I didn't find anything that fulfilled it. I think we all think that regardless of expiration date, decision by the company, the FDA, that most feel the product is uh, viable longer than printed and may even be, you know, shorted uh, for safety, you know, maybe overly concerned for safety reasons um, and, you know, uh, replacement of product. But uh, I think most feel that, you know, product is probably viable, you know, much longer than expiration date, as it were. Rich countries tend to think of reusing or using things that are getting close to expiration dates with a real sense that that's not a good practice. But poor countries that have nothing have very different attitudes so that there's some consensus that even though it may not be ideal, if they could get anything, that would help. Mm-hmm. As long as it's not, you know, horribly dangerous. Mm-hmm. But how would you know uh, if something is horribly dangerous if it hasn't really been looked at? Well, that's a separate issue, <laughs> but it's never going to get looked at because in the rich countries, they don't have to look at it, and they're not going to waste time with it. Mm-hmm. 
We managed to virtually cover a few of the late-breaking trials at the Heart Failure Society of America meeting this month, including results from the preserved HF trial. This study of 324 patients with preserved heart failure, defined as an ejection fraction of 45% or higher, was presented by Mikhail Koziborod of the St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute in Kansas City. The trial found that the SGLT2 inhibitor, dapagliflozin, eases symptoms and physical limitations among HEFPEF patients, and it does so within a relatively short period of time. As Koziborod showed, after 12 weeks of treatment, improvement in the Kansas City Cardiomyopathy Questionnaire, the KCCQ, clinical summary score was 5.8 points greater in patients treated with dapagliflozin versus placebo a difference that he characterized as large, clinically meaningful, and statistically significant. These findings, of course, come on the heels of the Emperor Preserved trial presented at ESC last month, showing that empagliflozin lowers the risk of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure in HEFPEF. But Emperor Preserved, as Todd Neal pointed out in his coverage, couldn't tell us about the effects of SGLT2 inhibition on symptoms, physical limitations, and exercise function. Results from the larger deliver and determine preserved trials of dapagliflozin are still pending. Todd spoke with Shelley Zeroth of the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, Canada, who helped put the findings of preserved HF in context. Well, it certainly uh, raised a lot of eyebrows at HFSA, and in part because this was really the first time we've seen that SGLT2 inhibitors improve symptoms and physical limitations in patients with HEFPEP, in, in, and it was in a short period of time, in just 12 weeks. So previous studies, including Imperial Preserved, have been negative and were awaiting determined preserved. But I think that this really adds to the totality of evidence uh, that we're starting to see in using SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with HEFPEP. It was interesting to me as well that we saw clinical benefits regardless of ejection fraction in contrast to, you know, some of the debates that came out of ESC after Emperor Preserved being presented. We saw consistency of treatment benefit in pre-specified subgroup analysis, both below an ejection fraction of 60 and above an ejection fraction of 60. So I think that 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 piece will, will get a lot of discussion. Earlier this month, TCTMD's Laura McEwen covered a study published in JAMA Cardiology addressing early menopause as a risk factor for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, ASCVD. As senior author Sadia Khan of Northwestern University told Laura, premature menopause defined as natural or surgical occurring before age 40 emerged in their analysis as an independent predictor of ASCVD. However, adding premature menopause to the pooled cohort equations used to predict 10-year risk did not hone risk prediction. Laura put the obvious question to Dr. Kahn. If it didn't enhance risk prediction for ACSVD, what does it tell us? I think there's two separate but related questions. One is, do we think that premature menopause is associated with greater risk for heart disease or ASCVD? And I think our prior data or the prior literature suggests that those women who experience premature menopause do have a higher risk for going on to get heart disease. Mm -hmm. We wanted to ask the question, if you know of someone that had early menopause, does including that 
enhance or improve understanding their risk for CBD. And why that question is a little bit different is because we're adding that on top of the risk factors that we know are causally related to CBD. So blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes status. And what this tells us is that perhaps premature menopause is an important risk factor, but it doesn't add predictive value when you already have the risk factors included in the modeling. The interpretation is that not that premature menopause is not an important risk factor to be aware of, to talk with your doctor about, to make sure that the that we as cardiologists are assessing, but that it's probably working through these risk factors. I think to me what it says is that we need to start even earlier in prevention measures, that if somebody goes through menopause early, really paying extra close attention to blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, and risk factors for heart disease. Here at TCTMD, we've covered several analyses looking at the wage gap between male and female cardiologists. One recent analysis showed that over the course of a lifetime, male cardiologists will earn several million dollars more than their female colleagues. As Michael O'Riordan reported this month, a growing proportion of revenue from cardiologists stems from treating patients insured by Medicare and or Medicaid. That led Inbar Raber of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston to wonder whether there were any differences in CMS payments to male and female cardiologists. Sure enough, Raber and her co-authors found that in 2016, men, on average, received 45% more than women in annual CMS payments for inpatient services and 62% more for services performed in the outpatient setting. In terms of hard numbers, that's 24,000 and 62,000 more paid to men for inpatient and outpatient services, respectively. There is a lot of nuance to this, and Mike's story goes into that in some depth. To give you a bit of a taste, here's part of Mike's conversation with Dr. Raber. If I'm reading the paper correctly, it's not a case of, so if you or I do an, uh, an echocardiogram, CMS reimburses me more money. Can you explain just sort of how this sort of difference is uh, accumulating between the men and the women uh, cardiologists? Yes, and that's actually a really important point to make, that there's no gender discrimination from the side of Medicare on reimbursements between men and women. So per billing code, it's the exact same for both genders. The difference really comes about because of the types and the volume of charges that are submitted, with men submitting both higher reimbursed charges and also higher number of charges overall compared to women. If I have learned anything as a journalist writing about cardiology for all these years, it's that you can't be afraid to sound stupid. In fact, the dumber the question, the more likely you are to learn something new. I had to remind myself of this when I invited Sanjay Call of Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles and David Cohen of the Cardiovascular Research Foundation in New York to join me on camera to discuss non-inferiority trials in cardiovascular medicine. We have seen a lot of these lately. I myself took my one and only statistics class more than 20 years ago, and I figured I can't be the only one who feels ill-equipped to understand what goes into deciding why treatment X is not statistically inferior to treatment Y. You can find this episode of our on-record video series by scrolling down the homepage at dctmd.com. 
For now, I have strung together two different clips from parts of this informative and, I gotta say, fun conversation. Have a listen. The whole idea of this, you know, non-inferiority, and we'll talk about the margin, I hope, uh, because it's a very important concept. It is, you know, in, in my view, as, you know, both a, a, a trialist as well as, a, you know, a clinician, they very often are unsatisfying because of this not unacceptably worse piece. Um, yeah. It's, you know, whenever you have, you know, it could be a little bit worse, we, we don't like that. Um, you know, we, we accept it sometimes, um, but non-inferiority trials really, I mean, again, the example, you know, the, the, the phrase I like to say, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like a tie in football. It's like, you know, like kissing your sister, right? It's, it just is not that satisfying. Because again, because you're giving something up and we don't like to give things up. Just one caveat I want to share with my clinical uh, colleagues is that, you know, non-inferiority design rests on a shaky platform to begin with. Hmm. What makes the non-inferiority design even more dubious is when you combine inconclusive, poorly designed, poorly conducted non-inferiority trials, and you meta-analyze them, and you come up with a pooled estimate that reaches the bar for non-inferiority, and then claim, hey, here is the drug, drug we should use, and we should then implement it in guidelines on clinical practice. This is a That's problem with I, all meta-analyses, though, isn't it? You can't, use, you can't use bad ingredients and get a good soup at the end, I don't think. You can find all of the news that matters day-to-day on tctmd.com, and if we're missing something, I hope you'll let me know. We continue to cover important COVID-19 research as it relates to cardiovascular disease and care. We're also keeping up our COVID-19 dispatch, which summarizes research and policy updates relating to the pandemic. If you're still craving more from ESC, check out the September edition of Rock's Heart Radio, which is produced by TCTMD's Caitlin Cox. This month, host Roxana Moran caught up with Stefan Windecker, Carolyn Lamb, and Victoria Delgado, chair and members of the program committee for this year's ESC meeting, to hear their highlights. Thank you to the TCTMD reporters for all your hard work, and to Dan Goodman for producing the Heart Sounds podcast each month. And all of you, of course, thanks for listening. Catch you back here next month. Do you love listening to Heart Sounds? Check out all new original content from TCTMD featuring Talking Points with Dr. C. Michael Gibson and Rocks Art Radio with Dr. Roxanne Moran. All new episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and SoundCloud.